coming to you, undead from the crypt. This is Adelaide Horror Podcast with Zombie Joe. <laughs> Excellent day for an exorcism. Hi, and welcome to the Adelaide Horror Podcast. This is your host, Zombie Joe, and today's episode is number 27. And I'm going to be talking about William Blackley's The Exorcist from 1973. Possibly, you know, as they say, it's the greatest horror film ever made. It's the only R-rated horror film to actually win awards. And it was the highest grossing Warner Brothers movie uh, ever made so it's it's funny how it's this real entity in itself and that you could just mention the title to somebody and even if they haven't seen it they're already saying yeah no i'm not watching that like or and the reason being is because of like myself speaking from experience it was a good 20 years before I kind of really put my big boy pants on and and sat down to watch this, even though I'd seen other horror movies before. This was not only the flagship, this was the big bad. This was the big kahuna. Um, And I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was ready to watch this. And this was purely because I was psyched out by, um, by so many people saying it's the scariest thing they've ever seen. The adults, I think it was for me, it was the adults, well, there's, there's different layers, and I'll get into that. Uh, the adults saying it was the scariest thing they've ever seen. You know, rational uh, family members that aren't big on watching horror films stating that they watched this film, they laughed all the way through it, and then they got home and completely freaked out because they had to walk in the dark to the to the back of the house, and suddenly Reagan's face was appearing everywhere. Like, and, and it was just that... It's, it is that sneaky movie that does sneak up on you. And that's why I think it is one of the ultimate terror films because you your brain processes it, but it's it doesn't hit you until later. I enter the house like to go to the kitchen or whatever, everything's dark, and I would be picturing that smiling face, you know, in the dark somewhere for, for no apparent reason, but it was just my brain doing that to me. And so... That's the power of this movie. Like, you know, the movie's long gone and packed up and on a shelf and that's it. Like, you know, and it was done in 1973. But here it is haunting me in, in the 2000s. You know, that's that's the power of the film. And so to go back and explain kind of why this thing gave me the massive heebies. Um, well, being from an Italian background, I was um, baptised and raised Roman Catholic. And so it wasn't the fact that I would go to church and hear the priest go rah, 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 the devil all the time, but it was just the exorcist was like, well, this is someone who fell victim to a dynamic possession and not by her fault. Like this is a completely innocent person who, who got spiritually attacked. And that kind of freaked me out because I thought, she's not a bad person like you know she's not like a serial killer or someone going out actively being bad against somebody um and you'd think that that person would then attract you know a dynamic attack or something because they're bad um 
so I kind of grappled with that growing up as a kid. And as I got older and kind of researched more and, you know, I kind of started to understand what good and bad was about. So then you add the other layer of my dad was a police officer in Italy in 1973 when The Exorcist came out and he was stationed in Rome. So Rome at that time, uh, the Vatican had put a veto on this movie being watched in Rome and said, no, nah, you're not doing it. They actually tried to ban it in Italy completely, but that was pretty unrealistic. And so Rome itself couldn't watch it. So... If you could drive, so what was happening was dad was explaining that the younger kids, like his agent, he was young himself, he was in his 20s, so everyone kind of uh, that wanted to see The Exorcist drove out of Rome and into the next town that was showing it. So the equivalent to explain it in Adelaide terms would be driving from the Adelaide CBD to Mount Barker. It wasn't a big drive, um, but, you know, kids had to go and drive elsewhere to, to see it as a loophole in order to watch this movie that was so forbidden. And it, all it did was just add, it just it kind of blew up in their face a bit because all it did was just added that mystique, that more mystique, and made it more forbidden. So it made it more desirable. So it really, if, if the Vatican kind of didn't jump up and down like they did, it wouldn't have really, you know what I mean? People would have gone, yeah, it's a, it's a possession movie, but... Uh, the, the interesting thing too was, uh, speaking from some, now my grandma's brother, so my great uncle, uh, was a monk, uh, stationed in Sicily, but actually was an exorcist for real. So he would go when the Vatican would say, right, you've got this person, such and such person in this location in whatever part of the world it is, um, has been proven to be, um, under possession to go out and and perform an actual exorcism so uh yeah that's what he did so that kind of you know growing up i was thinking shit i'm actually related to someone that's an exorcist so that added that other level um to the average other kid in that video shop looking at the exorcist title so because and that kind of weighed a little bit heavy on me as well someone innocent as reagan in the film can get attacked then fuck you know like i'm you know it could happen to me and i think like i said that's what scared a lot of people uh about this film so you add all these variables into it so like i said i'm little joe standing in the video shop looking at the title of the exorcist thinking oh shit you know, this is this is quite a scary movie. And as I grew older, I was still that same kid standing in the video shop going, do I hire The Exorcist or do I hire something else? And I'd always hire something else because, you know, I'd just kind of always end up chickening, chickening out, you know. So how it, how it happened to me that I ended up coming across, finally coming across to watching The Exorcist was way into the 90s, like, and so like way into my mid-teens, what funnily enough came across my radar was um when i was about 12 i was i was at a, a sleepover uh, another sleepover not the one where I, we watched child's play <laughs> but another another sleepover and this guy again had older siblings and um his dad was also italian and he had a pretty decent um stockpile of playboys both american and italian right and so the italian playboy so we we had this playboy scattered all over the room you know and we were flicking through the pages just being 
12-year-old kids, you know, uh, in my actual stack of Playboys that were the Italian Playboys was Linda Blair's photo shoot. Um, I didn't know who she was at the time. Uh, and so oh, I had this this Playboy in my hand. I had the centerfold out, you know, and there's uh, Linda Blair in all her glory kind of thing. And the older brother just went past and I just remember and he goes, oh yeah, that's the chick from The Exorcist. And I was like, what? Like, and I looked up and I went, The, ex the Exorcist? Like, and he goes, yeah, that's the girl on the bed that, you know, throws up and fucking head spins. And, uh, and I was like, fuck. And then as soon as he said that, I got that image of that smiling dynamic Reagan and I went, fuck. So, but I, I stared at her face and I was like, how is that? How is this chick? that scary monster from that picture that terrified me so badly. And it kind of went, I went, wow, that's that's some crazy makeup, like, for to do that. So that kind of planted that seed of, you know, well, the, the, the power of special effects and, and like, how well, um, if it's done right, how scary this thing can be. Like, they can make something really, you know, as sweet as Reagan looking to something so scary. So I kind of went, okay, years pass, you know, and it's the mid-90s. So at this point, The Exorcist 3 had come out, and my dad had hired it on video. <clears throat> so, and this is when he spoke to me about when he was a police officer in, in Italy when The Exorcist, the movie, came out, and all this weird shit that was and he, he says, you know, to, to kind of ad-lib and quote him, he goes, the religious and the satanic nut jobs came out. These are just people that are like, oh, I'm the devil, and start just doing all this weird stuff, like smearing shit on the wall. Like, he had to deal with them. And he goes, it was almost like there was a full moon every week. Like, he, he, he was just dealing with, you know, animal mutilations, people trying to kill their kids, like, you know, and, and they just blame this movie, like, all the time. And Dad goes, this is ridiculous. Like, what is this film? So he watched it, and he goes, what the fuck was everyone on about? And he goes, it's just a movie. He goes, it won't, this won't, you know, make the devil jump out and take you. So that, that's what he said to me. He was just like, you know, if you want to see The Exorcist, watch The Exorcist, but know that it's a movie. It's not going to come and get you. You know, it's not going to jump out of the film and, and, and take your soul, like, I can watch this movie and it won't affect me anymore. And like I said, as I got older, the heebies kind of wore off. And because I had experienced and I had seen, or you turn on the news and you see way more heavier, horrific shit going on in the real world than in what this movie was supposed to show me, like in an hour and two minutes or something. like. Um, and so... So Dad was like, yeah, you know, I remember one time this, this guy... Uh, there was a soldier, they had a call out to the movie theatre and eventually the, the movie was shown in, in Rome so people could go and see it. Anyway, The Exorcist was shown, he was, and they got called out because this movie theatre attendant was super spooked and said, this guy's not moving. Like, and he's just staring at the screen. And because this kid had seen The Exorcist so many times on the big screen in front of him, the imagery was burned into his brain. So you just imagine this guy, uh, the palpable tension, because it's a dark theater, the lights have come back on. This guy's trying to clean the theater and there's a guy staring straight at the screen with his head up, 
staring at the screen and not responding to him. And so this kid's probably thinking, shit, he's possessed or something, or this guy's head's going to turn around and throw up green... You know what I mean? You can almost imagine it. And so he, you know, rings the, the cops and, you know, come down. So Dad and his partner gets called to go. And so Dad goes down the, the theatre and he's got one... Uh, he's taken one lane down. His partner's taken the other lane down. They're shining the torches on him. But they have their guns drawn. Now, the reason why... Uh, because at that time, separate to this conversation, there was a group called the Red Brigade and they were attacking and killing cops and they would set them up into ambushes. So to for my dad, he wasn't thinking that this was something about possession. My dad was actually approaching this as, this guy's going to fucking ambush us like and shoot us in a theatre. So my dad's fear was something else, not a satanic film. Um, anyway, so he approaches the guy and sure enough, they, you know, come face level to him and they realize that this guy's actually died of a heart attack and he was, he had a soldier's uniform on, his eyes were wide. He was staring straight at the screen with his, with his mouth open. And my dad said, I can't get that guy's face like out of my mind. Like he goes, it just burned into him. And he was thinking, you know, what the fuck is with this movie? Like that it's just so powerful that now it's just freaked this guy out so badly that he's like it, it pretty much induced a heart attack. Like, so, um, and I was thinking to myself, shit, you know, do I want to see The Exorcist 3 now? Like, because, you know, is it going to be like this? Dad goes, look, you're all right. You're with me. It's all good. So we, I watched The Exorcist 3 or kind of on and off and I got hit. The only thing that scared the fuck out of me out of Exorcist 3, naturally enough, is that jump scare that we all know about. Uh, all jumped. Like, we weren't ready for that. And then we we had to pause the movie and quickly clean up the soft drink on the carpet <laughs> and the popcorn, vacuum the, the floor and uh, dust the couch off because, uh, yeah, the our, our snacks went flying. Uh, so, <laughs> but the rest of the movie... I found fascinating. This kind of started it for me. Like, okay, I think I can see The Exorcist now, but I still was a little bit chicken shit and I didn't go in and touch it. And then Leslie Nielsen's Repossessed. I remember uh, my parents, it was Naked Gun. You know, we knew this was taking the piss. Like, and and I watched it, we all laughed through it. So what made me feel more comfortable going, okay, if we can laugh at this, and Linda Blair, like my dad was going, this is the girl that was in the film, The Exorcist. So then I'm putting together the the nude Linda Blair from when I was 12 to the, the woman that is Linda Blair now in this funny movie, taking the piss out of herself and her role that made her famous. And I thought, you know what, I'm I'm ready to go. Like I, I think I can I can get into The Exorcist. So, I was wrong. <laughs> I chickened out fucking again. Anyway, so I went to the video shop and I hired Exorcist 2 because I thought, okay, the Exorcist 2 will kind of, you know, this is me dipping my toe into the into the pool of the Exorcist universe, right? And, and so, um, yeah, wow. I started getting into it and I fell asleep. Right, and I wake up going, "What the fuck was that?" Like, and I thought, "I'm not watching it." And I, re I returned it, going, "What is that movie? That was that was shit." So then, fast forward another ten to my thirties, 
and that's when I sat down and I watched it because I went, no, I'm, I'm cool now. Um, I can watch this movie and no, nothing's going to happen. So this is how long this journey took. Um, and so I had read the book at that point and it got me interested. At this point too, I started, like I said, got interested in the makeup and special effects and all this kind of stuff about how a horror film was made. And I watched the documentary about how they made the film. And it introduced me to Dick Smith, not that Dick Smith. <laughs> they introduced me to Dick Smith and and basically learned that Dick Smith um, was the mentor for Tom Savini. And when I, when I heard this, I was like, wow, you know, so that's why Tom Savini videos and records all his makeup demos and everything like that, because he wants to see if it works or not, like visually. And so he's doing the videos and the makeup thing for Reagan for The Exorcist. So there was many takes of what Reagan was supposed to look like until the final one had occurred. So one of the outtakes of Reagan's face was the Pazuzu thing that you see in that split second thing in the background in the dark and you see it really quickly and people are like what the fuck like did you see that like that face and everyone's like what face like you know it, it was done on purpose it kind of reminded me of the naked brad pitt dick shot in fight club it was kind of that subliminal quick flick of an image and everyone's like did i just see that like kind of thing and um so that's kind of how it was used throughout the movie and they recycled what was a failure and made it a success because people really got freaked by that face like and so did I I was like the fuck is that like and growing up I always either saw that face or I saw the smiling Reagan face and the smiling Reagan face terrified the shit out of me this thing ran my blood cold thanks to fantastic special effects by Dick Smith, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was to me, the ultimate kind of uh, fear imagery was the scariest thing I've ever seen. And, and so now you get what the psyche was of people, young people in their 20s back in 1973 when they see this movie for the first time. And everyone's like, holy shit. Like, because... These people, you've got to understand, had seen before this Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. And the ending of Rosemary's Baby was the holy shit moment. Like, and so the people coming out of the theatre or knowing of Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, coming out of that holy shit moment at the end of the film... And then not thinking about it until 1973 and then coming to the movie and then going to myself, oh, yeah, this is the the other satanic movie that I haven't seen yet. You know, uh, oh, yeah, that reminds me of that end scene from Rosemary's Baby. So everyone goes in then thinking about Rosemary's Baby. That projector starts in their mind. They start thinking about it. It starts to get into their psyche and suddenly bang the exorcist unfolds out in front of them, especially, you know, 40 minutes into this film. It goes from a science...
movie. Now, William got inspired to to write the script and to write this book by coming across a real-life true event that happened in the 40s to um, a young 14-year-old boy. Now, this movie, this book was written by Troy Taylor, and the book is called When the Devil, Come, the Devil Comes to St. Louis. Now, the boys, the 14-year-old boy, his name is Roland Doe. Now, all jokes aside, like, that is the greatest name for a baker I've ever met. Like, Roland Doe's or something, you know, Roland Doe's Bakery. But legitimately recorded, yes, this guy has been possessed by a demon, right? Now, again, this is this is a thing where someone innocent has been spiritually attacked. And this is where it makes it scary. Because so... The thing that's interesting about this is that Troy Taylor made many additions to this book, but never mentioned the kid's name. Now, the reason why this kid never got mentioned is because it's actually one of the rules for the Vatican that you can't talk about the person who had been under this spiritual attack. It's to protect their identity because after the dynamic possession is over, and said demon or entity is out of their life, that person goes back to being the person that they were. So you don't want the stigma of, oh, yeah, I'm the fucking demo boy from down the road, you know, forever and ever and ever. Like, and it didn't matter what you did. You were just going to be that kid that got possessed by the demon and was fucking weird one summer, you know. And so that's... That's one of the rules of the Vatican. Story that was told to me by my dad, my great uncle, who attended a possession of a girl in South America. And this girl fell under the influence of a dynamic being. The tests were made. Initially, everyone was like, she's got schizophrenia or whatever. No, that wasn't the case. So all these other tests were made by the, the priest around that area. And they said, no, she's she's showing signs of, of, of a dynamic possession. And this is pre-exorcist or anything like that. And my understanding was this was the 60s. So um, what I could kind of date stamp the story being of what my great uncle's age was at the time. And so him and a team were put together and he was asked to go to from the on the behalf of the vatican who gave the green light and said yes no these are showing signs of dynamic possession and off you go because they had certain tick ticks that they had to go yes this is what it is before they could send anyone there because the first off and even in this movie it shows you the priests immediately throwing the mental health thing down they're just going no she's schizophrenic no she's got this it's mental health blah 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 uh, it could be this health reason, it could be that health reason. They didn't immediately go, it was a demon like they would have done in the 16th century. So anyway, long story short, uncle kind of gets the green light. Yet yeah, you're off you go with these other priests. You're going to do this possession, you know, you're going to exercise the, the demon for this girl. Anyway, so he gets there and like I said, ad-libbing from what my dad was telling me, basically he walked in the door the second guy, the second priest walked in the door. The third priest behind him walked in the door. And this girl turns around and looks at the third guy and points at him. And in a man's voice, in Italian, says, 
who is this man who loves women more than his own God and starts laughing, right? And that third priest fainted and they took him out of the room. So my uncle, my great uncle and this other priest had to do the exorcism right on their own, not with three. So it made it a bit harder. So this exorcism took longer to perform because they struggled against whatever this thing was. Eventually it was taken out. They got, they got its name. He didn't say what its name was and he wasn't going to say what its name was. Afterwards, my great uncle said to him, what was, what was that about? And this guy was just pale. And he goes, I'm leaving the priesthood. The demon called me out. And he is right. I've been, I've been ever since I joined the priesthood. I've struggled with the celibacy rule, and I've been frequently uh, visiting this prostitute every weekend. Like so, and we have a regular thing going on where I go and see her. So, but the demon caught it out on him. And when you read this book, The Devil Comes to St. Louis and the priests involved, they talk about the rites of exorcism. So there's certain different prayers and ticks and things that are marked off before you start an exorcism or before you go, right, we're going to go down to this person and, and start this exorcism. So there had to be signs that something was off. And one of the signs was the fact that she knew things that she wouldn't have known, one being her age, two, she had never left the village, three, she only spoke the Spanish dialect of that village and nothing else. And and so the fact that she could call out this priest on something that they wouldn't know in Italian, in a man's voice that wasn't her own, uh, kind of, you know, was was kind of spooky to hear it. And but you know it is what it is, and that's that's the story. So when you when you pick up the book like the Devil Comes to St. Louis, and you're reeling Troy Taylor's kind of investigations into this uh, and to demonology and stuff like that, um, it becomes like yeah, this isn't this isn't a flight of fancy. This is this shit's real, like and and it could quite easily happen if you're not aware of it. You know, don't be scared of it. Just be aware of it, you know, and be realistic in how you approach it. So when Troy Taylor's recent edition came out, he mentioned the boy's name, which was Roland Doe, and he was 14. Now, the Vatican withheld his name for that reason because Roland Doe then passed away and, and Troy Taylor, being respectful to Roland, had withheld his name and his identity so he could live a normal life. Troy, Troy was in the book saying that this Roland Doe, because they withheld his name, he goes on to work for NASA and invents the protective coating around a shuttle so when it re-enters, it doesn't burn up in re-entry. Now, that fascinated me because I thought, holy shit, there was this kid at 14 who was succumbed and was possessed by a demon successfully had an exorcism achieved. The Vatican clears him of this possession. He goes back to being the normal 14-year-old boy that he was, right? He then grows up, then grows up, becomes, you know, rocket scientist, whatever, goes to NASA, invents this fantastic device that saves astronauts that is used up until this day now. And, you know... 
we would have only known him as Roland Doe, the possessed kid from fucking down the street, like at 14, if his name and, and ID was identified back then in the fort. Like, he wouldn't have... He wouldn't have had a normal life at all. He wouldn't have gone to NASA. He wouldn't have invented this thing in the rocket. It's it's amazing the sliding doors thing, like, you know, and so that's why it's very important, and that's why the Vatican doesn't divulge people that have had this happen. It protects their identity. I, <clears throat> I found that interesting in the research for this movie. Um, now... It was directed by William Friedkin. He was quite uh, an interesting character. Uh, very tough on the actors and actresses through this movie. Um, it was kind of like another Stanley Kubrick, really. And I don't know if it's because it was the 70s and that's how all these kind of directors acted or behaved. or, But he, he had come across like that linda blair was quite pissed off because one of his devices broke and that's why she's got a, fr a fractured lower back in the bed flapping scene where she's going up and down on the bed the actual device they're crying and everyone runs to her because it actually fractured her back like at the, in that scene and you see her crying because her back's fractured. I mean, that's that's really hard to watch knowing now what had physically had happened to her. Um, the, the thing about... Now, you can watch Cursed Films, which was on Shutter Season 1, Episode 1. Straight off the bat, they start off with The Exorcist, right? I really take that shit with a pinch of salt. I I I don't believe it for a minute. That that the set wasn't fucking cursed. You know, Satan wasn't there fucking around with the scripts and you know, people oh, I nearly died in this plane crash or you know, the one that I thought was really funny was like the whole entire set there was a fire on set, the whole set burnt down except Reagan's room. Well, yeah, because they fucking refrigerated it. <laughs> Because for this scene where there's the mist coming out of her mouth when they made this the thing close. So that probably acted as a fire retardant, hence why that room didn't catch fire. But such was the psyche that people aren't thinking rationally. They're automatically going, oh, there's something fucking satanic about this film. It's not. And I kind of lean either way. I've got that religious side, but I've also got the science side of it as well. I'm interested in the science, the kind of the guts and the bolts of what it, this is about. So I'm very open-minded and I investigate all angles and all avenues of this, not just, yet. Yeah, this is what it is and that's it. So the whole curse stiff is just a crock of shit and the pr stunting for this film was phenomenal and it is so phenomenal that it was outsiking me from the mid from the mid 80s well into the 2010s the pr from 1973 was scaring me you know that's how powerful this this you know um the power of promotion so in in the Shutter episode, it was interesting because it talked about the girl that was like, my job was to go around and make this thing look so scary. So Linda Blair was saying this girl who she was talking to said, 
she would make phone calls and get ambulances to park out in front of the theatre to build the atmosphere that this thing was so bad that you'll end up in a stretcher, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. So that's that's kind of, uh, you know, you add that fear element. People are already going in peaking, like I said, seeing the ambulance, then having seen probably in the 60s Rosemary's Baby, they're sitting in this theatre, the lights go down, you hear the tubular bells thing, McNeil's walking down the street, you know, it's a slow cranking build-up to this terror that hits you. It cost $11 million to make um, in 73 money, so I don't know what the conversion rate would be now, but the grossing thing, this is phenomenal amount of money. Now, in the US, it grossed $233 million five hundred thousand six hundred and forty four hundred dollars now before i'm going to say i want that in my bank account here is the worldwide grossing total which is four hundred and forty one million three hundred and six thousand one hundred and four uh, one hundred and forty five hundred dollars holy shit that is what i want in my bank account wow what an absolute fucking that is amazing the amount of doulas that was that it created uh that was phenomenal but like i said you know people would have gone and see it they would have said to their friend you've got to see this movie the preview was saying this is the scariest film you've ever seen you know the hype and whatever got people's asses in seats and they paid the money and and now it just boof it blew up so it's a two-hour movie and 40 minutes into this like i said it's a slow uh crank up now it's not majorly scary but it just it's 40 minutes of this kind of build up and then it all hits you all at once because even uh, unlike a conjuring movie you know reagan's talking about oh yeah this is the ouija board and the mum and it's just a scene where they're in a basement you know they're just kind of walking around the basement and the mum because she's catching up with her because she's come off a set she's a movie star she's come off the set you know, Reagan's talking about wanting to buy a pony, you know, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. And and then just in conversation, this thing comes up. Oh, what's this? Oh, it's a Ouija board. Oh, yeah, I use it all the time. We used it as a friend's fl- uh, sleepover. And I was talking to Captain Howdy, right? And that's how this thing manages to get in, actually attack Reagan. Reagan. And it's an interesting point too, because when my dad was talking about my great uncle and this story about the South American girl that got possessed, he said what he warned my dad was to don't fuck around with Ouija boards because in the 70s, the Ouija board thing was a big, you know, a big deal when everyone was doing it. And so he said to my dad, hey, you know, just just be wary of the Ouija board. Don't kind of fuck around with it too much because the person you're thinking you're contacting is actually could be an entity pretending to be that person. And it's a bit like Russian roulette. You keep spinning the chamber and eventually you're going to get the bullet. Uh, And, um, you know, so don't, you know, don't fuck around with it kind of thing and be careful. And so... um, 
that always stuck with me. So then when I actually sat down to watch The Exorcist, she pulls out the Ouija board. I'm thinking, ah, oh, fuck, like two and two together. If this was The Conjuring, you know, there would be a whole half an hour sequence seeing this Ouija board move around and it would have spelled out Captain Howdy and fucking, you know, you would have seen Reagan's eyes roll over or some weird clapping in the background, you know, some some shit. It was a real blink you miss it like she just goes oh yeah it's captain howdy blah, 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 next scene right and then it's you know they're playing the piano and all the friends are over and she walks in and she goes you're gonna die and she doesn't look well and then does this massive piss on the floor in front of uh father dyer he's playing the piano and this guy you know you're gonna die and he's like fuck you know uh, McNeil apologizes and sends Reagan back up into her room and it kind of kicks off from there. And then the science of this scene starts where they're doing, you know, brain scans, CT scans and all this shit. And she's screaming through this whole thing. So you see the medical side of it. And that got me interested. I was thinking, yeah, shit, okay, what what is the medical explanation for this? Because I've had... The religious explanation all the time you know it's the devil he's got a legion of demons blah 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 don't fuck around or kind of boiled down you know the kind of catholic view on that now so it got me wanting and because i'm like science and that kind of stuff i was like i want to see the scientific explanation of this not the religious one because i've had it all the time i want to see what other people are saying about this and so i kind of looked into it and i came across a thing called D-I-D. Disassociative Identity Disorder. This was fascinating for me because I thought, wow, here is a scientific name to the thing that is what someone possessed looks like. So it's, you know, behavior, voice changes, physical strength, demeanor, everything. And so this is the science behind it or the name behind it. So when, so the Vatican and, and stuff like that, when they send out, before they send out their team to perform the rites of exorcism, they send out the psychologists and they'll send out a psychologist that isn't religious and they'll send out a Catholic psychologist and they will work together and go to this person, have a look at what they are, do their tests and then come back and say, yes, this is um, multiple personality or DID. Uh, and no, you don't need to bring out the exorcism team. Or, you know, there is proof of this. These rites have been done. And the Catholic priest would go back and say, yes, we need the team here. You know, fucking, you know, exorcism team assemble or some shit like and they'll go out and they'll and they'll perform their exorcism so this there's many protocols and steps before a priest walks into a room with a cross holding the bible saying we're gonna you know and starts throwing holy water there's the you know there's a lot of uh steps like I said, they cover the, the science stuff of, of Reagan and you see her tormenting happen uh, while all these science experiments are happening and these medical experiments are happening because they're trying to investigate if she actually has a mental issue or a physical health issue. And in doing so, 
she's weathering around and getting really pissed off and it's not her it's the demon inside of her and then it's not until the hypnotosis session happens when Pazuzu comes out in a full fucking swing and 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 takes over and that's when we get the full blown you know she comes back slaps her mum grabs the crucifix starts stabbing herself in it there was a guy that had tied um uh miss mcneil who's actually played by ellen burston she gets flung across the thing because uh, freakin says yank the thing give it all you got and send her flying because the original take looks shit she linda blair slaps her and it doesn't look good on camera and freakin's like nah it doesn't look real and says to the guy on the rope, yank it, like give it all you got. And he does. And that's why you see her fly into the into the side cabinet. And she's in pain, like because her back hits the cabinet and bends her backwards where her head almost hits the, the glass uh, of the bedroom window. And she's, uh, you know, she's got the, you know, the blood of Reagan on her face. And that scene was quite confronting, but you know it's it's to add to that um tenseness of that of that film so this pazuzu that everyone is that is brought up and eventually found out through this movie because the priests have have after this verbal tussle for ages finally says its name and so pazuzu actually is um there's two kind of they're not twins but they're and i don't know if they're siblings but they they're worshipped in um uh, iraq entity that muslims are aware of there's two of them there's pazuzu and there's lamazu and and that's spelled l-a-m-a-s lesser of the evils apparently and that pregnant women of the time that head that you see father merrin hold at the start of the film um is actually take them their their fetus when they're pregnant because apparently lamazu is the worst one and goes after the kids um and so i found that interesting while while researching and you and as the other exorcist movies goes on you get you get to kind of you know see what this one's about and it's really explained more in the beginning <clears throat> while the thing and that's why you find this head in the ground and why we see a very old father merrin at the start of the movie and then you see that massive statue of of Pazuzu. Um, if you're really interested in finding out more about The Exorcist, there is a three-part uh, by guys called Astonishing Legends. These guys are really, really good. I've, they're in my podcast circle when that I go to when I'm researching or listening or when I'm going for my hikes. They happen to do a three-episode a three they go for an hour and a half each and episode three goes for three hours and it goes into the science and the psychology of an exorcism and it's fascinating and this is where i learned a lot of stuff that i didn't know like um and so it really um 
uh, quenched my my kind of thirst for the science behind this. Uh, so heavily recommended. Astonishing Legends, uh, really, really great. The, you can get docos on YouTube about this, um, and then, of course, you can get the book um, Devil Comes to St. Louis by Troy Taylor. And if you get the current edition, it talks about Roland Doe. Like, and now, Doe, I didn't explain before, Doe is spelt D-O-E, as in Jane Doe and John Doe, because they still kept his his last name withheld, but um, his first name is Roland. So, definitely recommends on that one. <clears throat> and like I said, so the cast for this is, who's playing Miss Chris McNeil, is Ellen Burstyn. Um, Reagan McNeil is played by Linda Blair. Uh, Father Merrin is played by Max von Sato, who's a Swedish actor. Uh, and Father Damien Karras, played by Jason Miller. And then you have Father Dyer, who's, um, he's the friend for Father Karras, and he's also in, um... Exorcist 3 as well, played by another uh, character, Regan's sister, played by uh, Kitty Wynn. She also, too, then appears in The Exorcist 2. She's she's in there as well. Um, and so she's kind of comforting her mum. She doesn't understand what's going on. It's And, and you just see this this kind of um, unfolding of desperation of uh, Miss McNeil trying to work out what is going on with her daughter. Because like I said, pre 40 minutes prior to this, you're seeing Reagan as this fun, caring, sweet 14-year-old girl, you know. And when you see her change... And it's incredible acting on Linda Blair's part. Like, this is amazing acting. Like, she's no slouch. Like, she came into this. She had um, done numerous commercials, photo shoots as a kid. Her main goal was to be a vet. But she was actually pursued by Disney. Like, and she could have been the face of Disney. Like, if you can imagine that. He ended up landing the role for Reagan. Doors moment, you know, what if she took up the office from Disney and never went into the exorcist? The face of of this Reagan would have been a different girl, you know, and, and can you imagine a girl at that time who would have been the face of the exorcist? So it's hard to kind of imagine because, you know, Linda is has been in such our psyche for a long time, since 73, that she will always will be uh linda um you know she always will be reagan um so to see her tormented and become the tormentor uh, especially when the demon takes over and how she acts and her like the voice linking like the way she ad-libbed with um with the voice of Mercedes uh, McCambridge, she, to do the voice, I found fascinating how she did this technique. So basically she swallowed raw eggs 
smoked packets of cigarettes and then even though she battled with alcoholism she kind of went back to drinking bottles of whiskey in order to get that voice like say for example what an excellent day for an exorcism lip syncing was spot on like if you really look at it like it nails it it's like it's like she's saying it it's it's incredible so that's where freaking really um lucked out by having someone as great as linda blair but at the age that she was to deliver that performance and that's why it's terrifying um and then you've got you know and if you look at the other exorcist movies in the series two and three in the beginning all the actors and actresses in there they're not slouches these are some heavy hitting actors and actresses that came on board to this movie um and so it did attract uh, a lot of the the kind of upper echelons of actors and actresses to be a part of this project um so that's why this this movie's phenomenal like i said i'm not going to get into the ending or you know we've probably seen this movie and already know the ending but if you're listening to this and you and you and you haven't seen it yet and you're a horror fan and you're umming and ahhing about whether you want to watch it or not and like i said i'm not going to gatekeep you on this one i'm not going to say you're not a horror fan until you've seen the exorcist and bullshit like that I'm just going to say, watch it when you're ready to watch it. Um, watch it when you are ready, because if you're not ready for this, this will throw you off a bit. Even though this is a 40-plus-year-old movie, um, the the contents, especially at the end, um, and what's being said, and the, and the delivery, and the kind of the tension, and the physical, visual horror of it, is, is quite something... Uh, that no other movie has really done. Um, and so, first time horror movie? Uh, absolutely not. This is, the, the, this is well, uh, it's like getting your L's and jumping into a, a fucking supercar. Um, yeah, no, I would, I would definitely get some horror under your belt before you can check this one out. Um, if you are from a religious background and you like horror like I do, um, my advice would be separate the two and come to this knowing that this is a film. It is made up. It's just a movie. It's not going to, you know, if you're going to watch this, it's not going to jump out and take you. That's, that's my advice. Separate the two. Know that this is a piece of cinema. It's a piece of art. That's all it is. It's not going to come and get you later on at 3 a.m. Like, chill out. Um, and so, and you'll enjoy it And uh, for that reason. And uh, it is a phenomenal horror film. Um, it's, it's a horror for me because it's almost touching realism for me. Uh, the contents of the subject matter, that is, not the actual events. Um... And so that's that's why when I finally watched it and the end credits came up, I fucking high-fived myself. I was like, I did it. I fucking, I fucking did it. Like, I climbed the horror Mount Everest, you know, and I didn't die. <laughs> and I did become possessed, you know, like, yeah, high-five. Like, that was The Exorcist. So, mate, hands down, 9 out of 10, 
um, it still holds up for 1973, which is incredible. Um, visually, music, uh, uh, cinematography, the special effects, fuck, it's just incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, Spider Crawling to Exorcist 2. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to rip through these now as a, as a, uh, horrible mentions. Um, Exorcist 2. Yeah, well, um, look, Exorcist 2, the actors were good. The script was shit. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Um, I can't piss on too much about it. Uh, it came out in 1973, 77, uh, so I was a little tacker watching this movie and I used to misread the title as Exorcist 2 The Hectic <laughs> instead of The Heretic. And boy, was this movie fucking hectic. Anyway, so it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't wrong. Uh, so it goes for an hour and 57 minutes. It was uh, 14 million to be made and it grossed worldwide 30 million because everyone went back into the theater wanting The Exorcist. Reagan uh, comes back, Linda Blair. Uh, Father Lamont now is the main priest character played by Richard Burton. You would know him from Who Who Where the Eagles Dare, which is a great fucking World War II movie. I, I used to love watching that one. Um, and from Zulu, both films star Michael Caine and uh, definitely recommends uh, for that. Dr. Tuscan um, is played by Louise Fletcher. You would know her... As the scary chick from Flowers in the Attic. I don't know if you remember that from the 80s. The title cover for the book used to creep me the shit out as a kid. She was also in Cruel Intentions with Sarah Michelle Gellar. Now, Sharon, who plays um, Reagan, Reagan's sister, so Kitty, Killy Wynn. Uh, she comes back in this one and she's assisting uh, Dr. Tuscan. And then we also get introduced to Kukumu. <laughs> this is the fucking, it made me laugh. <laughs> There's a place in Kukumu, uh, played by James, James L. Jones. Uh, and he's he's the African side of the story to this uh, bazoozle. Anyway, and. So basically, Reagan is like now eighteen years old, and she's in this uh, in this facility, and they're kind of studying her. And the doctor is is working with other um, clients in in the building. So there's I noticed when I was watching this, there was a lot of people with Down syndrome, and um, people with uh, there was one girl that said I have autism. So the autism how they viewed autism in 1970s as opposed to how they view the autism now is dramatically different. Um, and so, and you can tell in this film. So these kids uh, are in there and Dr. Tuscan is studying them to help uh, treat, treat them. So in doing this, um, Father Lamont is sent by the Vatican to investigate what happens to Father Merrin. Now, because Exorcist 2 is investigating Father Merrin, Exorcist 3 is investigating Father Karras. 
So, so Father Lamont gets sent out to to investigate what is going on. So he he meets up. So he first the first port of call is is uh, Reagan. In doing so, they do a um, telekinesis kind of thing. And there's a cool special effect where it's almost like a hologram, like Star Wars style hologram, where you see possessed Linda Blair on the on the bed, you know, with the priests and all that. The makeup for that was shit. And she, the woman playing, it, it looked, she actually looked like the people from Under the Stairs. But that's what it was, Craven's movie. That's what it reminded me of. If you look at that. Um, and people started to say this is where the movie lost them because they it, he goes on to discover to try and find where this Pazuzu thing is and you find a young Father Merrin and he's in Africa and he's tracking Pazuzu there and and they <clears throat> and he stumbles across the kid that is is possessed by Pazuzu that then later on becomes the head of the like like the town the the leader or the chieftain of this of this thing and he's all about the locusts because it came with a locust plague and that's where they were blaming this Pazuzu from arriving and he got possessed and now he's not possessed anymore and because the witch doctors got rid of it and so father lamont goes to africa and uh is subsequently attacked in africa because he because of this this um telekinesis imagery that he saw he saw the death of somebody in africa one of the uh witch doctors or something and so he goes there with this knowledge he happens to say this knowledge and, oh, yeah, this is where the body of this witch doctor is. Spooks the living fuck out of all the, the uh, you know, the African witch doctors that are like, you know, this guy's fucking, he's a demon. And they turn on him and they start stoning him. <laughs> they start running and he's getting stoned. You know, people are throwing stones at him and stuff. And so he he gets back and like I said I'm ad libbing Exorcist two a lot because and like I said it's only a horrible mention and eventually they get to um you know Reagan so this whole entire time you're looking at Reagan and she's super nice in this thing and the whole entire time you're like fucking hell she's gonna she's gonna go full. She's going to go full exorcist any minute now. You're just waiting for it. And and so they track, they do a, another telekinesis session. And for some reason, Pazuzu leads Father Lamont to Washington State, like leads him back. So he's hypnotized. He catches a train. He gets on a plane. Reagan's following him this whole entire time, massive loopholes, like how he bought a ticket, how he, whatever, like huge loopholes through this whole entire thing. At one stage, the ticket guy goes to her to say, oh, you know, holds Reagan, it's like, what are you doing? And he spins around in his demon voice going, leave her, she's with me. Like, you know, and the guy goes, well, shit, you know, and leaves him alone. But like I said, Matt, multiple loopholes in this one, finally gets and like i said i'm absolutely being if you haven't seen the exorcist 2 i'm not saying to rush out and see it I'm gonna probably add more questions than answer them so probably give it a wide berth 
um, I'm kind of gunning through all the shit in order to kind of give you what The Exorcist is really, what The Exorcist 2 is trying to get at. Um, and they get to the house, the actual house of, of Reagan's um, childhood home and the big showdown and the demon is waiting inside her bedroom and he's projecting itself as 18 year old Reagan. So she's got the glowing eyes, but she's wearing a nightie. So they really sexualize the shit out of Linda Blair in this one, right? Because this is where they were going with it because they were trying to suggest that father Lamont wanted to get on with, with um, Reagan the whole time. And so this is what happens. Like the demon then starts saying, you know, come to me, come and join me on the bed. And, you know, he does. And because he's under the influence and she's like, uh, you know, stroking him and caressing him. And, you know, and he's all over her as well. And she's saying, kill her. And so he turns around and there's Reagan standing in the room going, no, it's me, kind of, you know, the real Reagan. So Reagan actually isn't possessed this whole entire time. Pazuzu's kind of floating around and uh, manages to get in contact with Father Lamont via hypnotism. So again, they've gone back to what's happened in The Exorcist, the first one. And um, yeah, so anyway, we kind of get this really weird, in my notes here, I put, poltergeist ending because it really that's what the fuck happened like this weird shit goes down with the building and you get this poltergeist ending like and i'm like i wonder if steve steven spielberg pinched this ending for the poltergeist linda blair fucking hated this like she she was like but couldn't get out of it because she was struck she was contracted to do a sequel for The Exorcist because it was so popular. And The Exorcist 2 got locked in, and because of the sequel and her contract stating that if it went into a sequel, she had to be a part of the sequel. So her parents and her and her agent and everyone kind of was like, I don't want to be a part of this movie, but they were locked into it, and they, she couldn't, whatever. And the actors were not keen on this film as well because they all stated that the script was weak. Um, James L. Jones, not a massive fan of this film whatsoever. Like, um, and if people brought up The Exorcist 2, he got really pissed off about it. Like, he, he didn't want to talk about it at all. So it reflects. So this is, this is an example where you can have all these king-hitting actors and actresses, but if your script is weak and full of fucking plot holes like this one, it's not going to make sense. I, the funny thing about Exorcist 2 is I watched or tried to watch this like three times and I fell asleep every single time through this movie. And it took ages for me to actually sit down and watch it from end to start to end to try and get my head around what the fuck this movie was about because I just, or just not off. And then I'd wake up and I'd be like, where the fuck am I? Because this, because there's so many plot holes. So not the best one in the in the franchise, but you know if you if you want to watch it for the sake of saying that you've watched all the Exorcist movies, you know have at it, but just know that there's a lot of plot twists in it, and it is what it is. So Spider Walking towards Exorcist three, so nineteen ninety. Now William Blatt is back with this one, hands down. This is my favourite 
Exorcist opening score. The music for this one was like, whoa, shit. And because this is what I watched first, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, this is this is pretty good. Like, you know, the mist through the town. We creepy. Creepy, actually, I should say. And uh, opening sequence. And then leads into these murders. And ever since then... Like I said, growing up Catholic and stuff, I've never, I was never really big on doing confessions, and I've only done it a couple of times because you know our primary school was pretty big on it, and the and the priests were kind of introducing us kids to what a confession was. After that, we never did it. I fucking didn't do it because of Exorcist Three. The cast for this, um, I couldn't get the stats on how much this movie cost to make so apologies about that um it was i just couldn't get anything the movie goes for an hour and 50 minutes it was done in 1990 uh father dyer who's now played by ed it just made me laugh fucking ed flanders holy shit so close to ned flanders uh it's uh, incredible uh oakley oakley um so Fucking the thing that made me laugh about Ed Flanders, this guy looks like Mike Whitney. Now, <laughs> for Australian for Australian listeners, and you'd get Mike Whitney from Who Dares Wins. Yeah, you know, he's an Australian athlete now, commentator. Haven't really seen much of him at, at all. Uh, but he's Father Dyer, who apparently was supposed to be, who was originally played by uh, William O'Malley in the first one, you look at the two together and you're thinking, how the fuck is this guy like the same person? Anyway, uh, so that that happens a lot in Exorcist 3. Um, you have Lieutenant Kindleman again, played by one guy, now played by George Scott. Now, George Scott, you would know him from uh, Patton, the movie. And then you've got the Gemini Killer, played by Fred Dorif. When I watched this, I immediately connected Fred, um, um, Brad with Child's Play. So I was like, right, this is the dude, if I ever made a horror film and I needed a scary, kooky fucker, this was the guy. Like, Brad, number one choice for me. So this Patient X is turns out to be Father Karras, right? And so this is kind of the do-do-do thing about Exorcist 3. And it's again played by a very older Jason Miller. Uh, so we're of the interpretation that at the end of The Exorcist, Father Karras does a stumble and dies. Um, at the flat, and Father Dyer is next to him, giving him his last rites before he goes. The thing is, if you watch that scene, you don't see him take his last breath. He's he's just doing the last rites, and then there's the last chain. So it was very clever what you thought you saw and what actually happened were two different things because it actually enabled the loophole to for for um, for Blatty to say Father Karras is back. Now, Dr. Temple is played by Scott Wilson. We all know him from The Walking Dead as Herschel from The Walking Dead. Uh, and then we've got Nurse Adelton, played by Nancy Fish. Fuck, was she the most creepiest nurse. So, Linderman is 
investigating these murders that happen across Washington State. The hallmarks of these murders are trophies or the style of killings that the Gemini killer would do. Now, the, while investigating this, he comes across Father Karras in, the, in this mental hospital. And so, so begins the Exorcist Three, and the demon, you know, Pazuzu, kind of there and tormenting um, Lieutenant Kinderman because you're seeing Father um, Father Karras one minute, but you're seeing the face of, of really of Brad Dorif the whole time, and he is the Gemini killer. So it's just Lieutenant uh, Kinderman with the Gemini killer, but it's actually, you know, the the body is Father Karras. Uh, and that's this to and from this whole entire time. And then there's this, the priest comes in to, to do an exorcism and there's the big showdown. The major thing in between this movie is the shears that are used in the catapitation of the murder victims. All the killings are done off screen. You don't see them. You see the aftermath. But there was the one scene, and we all talked about it. <laughs> that scared the living shit out of everyone. And, and like I said, my dad and I had to pause the film and clean up afterwards because we fucking, we were not ready for that. And we had to peel ourselves off the ceiling. Like, I've, I suppose a lot of people had to in that scene because it is such a build-up jump scare that you don't know it's going to happen, right? And it really throws you off because there's fucking cops everywhere. And the cop walks in the room, cop walks out of the room, cop walks into the scene, walks out of scene. And, and you're moving down this corridor like you would as any other normal scene would do. Like there's no, there's nothing to suggest, you know. And then you get the 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 false jump scare with the nurse, and then you get the the fucking left hook, right? And I to this day still say it's the best jump scare ever made. Nothing was, no one will top it, right? It, it just nobody will top this. This is the ultimate jump scare ever done. And then afterwards, he's explaining what has happened to the nurse. And it's just really gross. And you're like, holy shit. Like, this is really, like, what the fuck is this? And it really, Exorcist 3 is almost like a very scary episode of the X-Files. Take out Kinderman and all these other things. And you put, uh, you know, Fox Mulder. Uh, and Scully here, you've you've got yourself an X Files episode about a killer that's possessed by a demon. Like you know, holy shit. Um, and yeah, that's that's why it's the Exorcist three isn't as strong, but it's the stronger one in the in the sequel sequences of the Exorcist series. Um. And then yeah, later later and then there's a scene where the kind of the demon manages to get out and then you physically see these these shears, right? The chrome on these things. And and you just when I first saw this thing and it's attacking Kinderman's daughter, 
and the shears come out and almost take her head off. And I'm looking at the shears going, who the fuck makes that? Like, what shears look like this? Like, I've I've looked at different kinds of garden shears. No one, mate, you can't get it at fucking Bunnings for 20 bucks. Like, you know, how <laughs> terrifying these, these shears on top of everything else that's going on. So, um, look. That's pretty much all I'm going to say about Exorcist Three. Definite, definite recommend. If you if you haven't checked this out, fucking do yourself a favor on this one because this is this is a real good thing. But it doesn't have Linda Blair in. It comes more of a crime uh, X Files style uh, film, but fucking brilliant nonetheless. Now, The Exorcist: The Beginning, two thousand and four. This is where I went right. I'm I'm going to watch The Exorcist now because of this movie right because i thought okay it's got some it's got a decent cast in it um and it's made in and it's done by william blackley as well he's 80 million bucks it makes 78 million worldwide which is not bad like um so a bit short but not that bad the director for this one is uh, Rennie Halen. Uh, you'd know him from Deep Blue Sea. That's who he directed. This movie goes for an hour and 54. The cast in it is pretty good. So you got Father Mirren, who's played by Stellan Skarsgård. So that's uh, the Skarsgård boys. That's their dad. Uh, he's very well known to play good and bad characters. Uh, and he plays Father Mirren in this one. So middle-aged... 30, 40 year old Father Marin. Sarah is played by Isabella Scaparico. Fra Father Francis is played by uh, James Darcy. Joseph, the small African boy, is played by R R Rennie Sweeney. Major Granville is played by Julian Wood Woodhane. And Jeffries is played by Ellen Ford. You know the Cockney guy from. Um, from Snatch, he was also in uh, Cockneys versus Zombies. So the the the, the story of this is you, you got the opening and it's very it's like massive field, kind of like the Last Crusade, and everyone's dead on the ground. But it works out that everyone had murdered each other, and you later on find out the only survivor was this priest, who was. Um, and as he's stumbling through the bodies, he sees a priest who was clutching the head of Pazuzu, the same head statue of Pazuzu that you see in the start of the first exorcist that was uncovered by the diggers and the uh, in the archaeologists. Because Father Merrin is an archaeologist. He's haunted by what had occurred to him in World War Two, so this is this is a good one because in the beginning, the Exorcist, the beginning, you get the backstory of Father Merrin and where he comes from. You learn that he's a Dutch priest, like that he was a Paris priest in Holland in World War Two when the Nazis occupied it. They gather the people in the village and start executing them one by one. And the Gestapo says to Father Merrin, "There's no God here, priest." And then shoots this kid in the head, right? And this is why Father Marion goes, nah, I'm not a priest anymore. Because I could have done something or my faith could have done something and to save these people. So he's wrestling with this. He's an alcoholic because of this. You can see he's uh, grappling 
with his faith. This is another underlining theme between Exodus 1, 2, 3 and this one here. All the priests in this film are grappling with their faith. They got to the point where they're like, I've done this gig for a long time. I've seen a lot of really bad shit that humans are doing to each other. And these are what is affecting these priests in all these movies across the board. So mainly Merrin in this one because of what all this horrible shit that went down in World War II. So he comes to this to this archaeological site because of this this church that has been uncovered unbeknown to him that this church that has been uncovered has been the site of pazuzu and uh the people being influenced by pazuzu and uh end up killing each other on this thing so when he enters the the site the crucifix has been snapped and hung upside down and right where this altar is and he's going, well, shit, okay, hang on, this isn't real. Oh, this is now um, a satanic kind of worshipping area. Like, this has become because of the upside-down cross and all this other stuff that's been kind of put there. And then he realised, no, hang on, this actually is being built to worship Satan, not God. Um, and so when that uncovery uh, occurs, it really kind of makes the film really interesting like i was like oh shit okay this is this is a bit different because usually it's like a church has been converted into something as whether this has been built like that you know and even the priests are saying look the spears are pointing downwards like this has been deliberately made like this and then you see pazuzu the actual statue there and then you work out that the beyond the altar is the real uh, area where all the human sacrificing was made and that's where the the entity is released from and this is where we have that connection to exorcist the exorcist the first one in with the older far the mirror and he's uh, they uncovered the head again and the way he looks at it now matches the exorcist the beginning because you're you're now realizing that old father Merrin is remembering everything that's now happened in exorcist the beginning now in 2004 so everything that unfolds in this movie um at the end with with father Merrin and him you know donning the the velvet colored robe that you put on um when you're performing the rite of exorcism because there is a color to the veil that they wear and the specific you know prayers and stuff that they have to do once he puts that back on and he cracks open the bible and he's like you know going through the the rites of the exorcism pazuzu is knocked on his ass because um he was kind of hoping with everything that's tormented this guy he could make father merrin even more weaker by co continually playing um this scenario and making him spiritually weak as whether he just kind of you know father Merrin gets his shit together puts on the veil and starts the exorcism and and like i said ends up defeating or putting away pazuzu anyway for that period of time the movie itself is really interesting throughout the thing because because the the local um in, indigenous native tribe around there is getting the hebes on because 
this priest has rocked up and all this weird shit's starting to happen and uh because they're starting to waken pazuzu in this area and the digging and so they get really angry with the presence of this thing and so the british guy there calls in the army a, 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 a battalion of um british soldiers and so when this happens um it creates tensions amongst the the tribe of course you know heightened tensions everyone's nervous someone's trigger happy a gun goes off and that just starts this massacre they happen to be in this one spot where this pazuzu entity gets out and influences everybody all in that area and so um in the meantime you're kind of tracking who is possessed by pazuzu and then it, it's revealed who was possessed by pazuzu and you have the the possession sequence and uh, father merrin um has to kind of you know get his shit together you know spiritually and physically and say right i need to defeat this thing in order to survive and so he does and then so at the end of the movie he's taken his faith back on and he's back to being a priest and now we can go and watch exorcist the first one and it it time matches because when when the exorcist uh the beginning is filmed it's in like the 50s like late 40s into the 50s kind of thing so when you see aged father Marin in 1973 in the first exorcist it matches up time wise uh to father Marin, and then we learn you know so it's it was interesting seeing a younger Father Merrin anyway in this and kind of explaining his deal and where he comes from. So that's why I really liked The Exorcist, the beginning, and I thought it was a really good way. So my advice when you want to sit down and you haven't seen any of The Exorcist movies, my advice to you is to see The Exorcist, the beginning first. Uh, get an idea of what's going on because then when you see elderly Father Merrin in 73, it will make sense. And so when you go and attempt to watch Exorcist 2, it kind of makes sense a bit, but then loses the plot midway through the film, and that's kind of the end of it. And then Exorcist 3, like I said, is its own thing, and it's essentially a glorified X-Files episode. So that's kind of where it all sits with those. So uh, Exorcist The Beginning, for me, gets an 8 out of 10. Exorcist 3, for me, gets an 8 out of 10. Exorcist 2 gets a 6 out of 10. And Exorcist, the first one, gets a 9 out of 10 from me. So um, Exorcist, the beginning, as a first-time horror film, yes, I can say you can do that. That's that's fine. Um, that's all good. Exorcist 3 as the first-time horror film, yeah, you could. Because, like I said, it gets away with the fact of being a glorified kind of crime X-Files episode. So it will creep you out, but it won't terrify you to the point where you're leaving the, uh, sleeping with the lights on, you know. So, um, yeah, excellent. Hope you enjoyed um, that episode. Again, apologies for the lateness. I Yeah, my work's really out of control at the moment with rostering and I got given a lot of 12 hour shifts so that was quite a hard thing to balance and then uh, time the episode to release it so apologies for the lateness but it, it finally came out and uh, hopefully now Pazuzu doesn't get its hands 
<laughs> on my roster again, um, and it leaves me alone. So yeah, looking forward to the up, a couple up and coming episodes of I've got them planned out. Um, and uh, yes, excellent. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, like I said, uh, talk to your friends about it. Like and subscribe on Facebook if you haven't already done that, and like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, thank you for everybody that answered my question about what everyone was feeling about The Exorcist before they watched it, because I knew, you know, all the adults saying, oh, it's really scary, blah, 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 would psych everybody out. So I just wanted to kind of gauge how old everyone was when they actually first watched it, which I thought was uh, interesting. So if you're pretty keen to, to read all those comments uh, definitely go onto my um, Facebook group, uh, and in the in the comment section, you'll see everyone add their experiences. So um, thank you for those for sharing. Uh, excellent. So thank you very much. I uh, hope everything everything's all well with you guys. Uh, stay scary, and uh, again, I will see you in the crypt. Adelaide Horror Podcast with Zombie Joe. <laughs>